Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Now, you experienced something recently that every working journalist hopes they can experience, <laughs> which is that you harpooned your white whale. Yeah. Uh, so I got Scott Foster, the emergency goalie, and uh, I show up at his house in the suburbs, and we're going to go to the game together. And it was his wife who revealed to me, you know, we heard you on the radio, and you had mentioned that Scott was your white whale. We thought that was kind of funny, and I'm pretty sure that is why they decided one year later to finally grant me an interview. Exactly. It's it's an amazing story, the idea that, like, because Foster obviously is, like, he's talked to some people. He went to the NHL Awards. Not really gone too super in-depth with anybody. You get the interview, and you get it because they're so impressed with you having established him as your uh, as your cause. So on this very podcast right now, Emily and I would like to establish, Tim Thomas, listen, mm-hmm. if you have the ability to download a podcast in, in your bunker, um, hopefully it's ours. If you can hear this, if you can hear the sound of our voices, you are now our white whale, Tim Thomas. If you ever want to speak to anybody about life, about hockey, probably not about politics, but about those two things, we have now established you. You are now the official ESPN and Ice white whale former Bruins goaltender Tim Thomas. Is there another white whale on the list now that fosters off it? No, it's all you, Tim. It's all you. <laughs> no pressure. No oh, pressure. We'll see you next week. <laughs> all right, coming up on ESPN and Ice, a jam-packed show. Uh, playoff uh, the, the scheduling and seating is coming into focus. Uh, we're going to talk to Jeff Blaschel, Detroit Red Wings head coach. We're going to talk to Leah Hextall, the voice of the men's NCAA uh, ice hockey tournament for ESPN2. And then also the unfortunate folding of the Canadian Women's Hockey League. All that and more on this edition of ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey, everybody, it's ESPN on Ice. The podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national nationwide NHL reporter. I'm going to try that one. It didn't work. I'll try again next week. <laughs> national. Work, uh, let's see if we can. I mean, I think it works if you can get a car rental company to sponsor your title. Like nationwide was a good attempt. Maybe you should change it to national Hertz mm. hockey writer. Possible. The playoff picture is uh, almost formed. As we do the podcast, we are coming off a night in which the Carolina Hurricanes and the Montreal Canadiens were both victorious, and Columbus pooed the bed on home ice against the Boston Bruins. All three teams have two games left. Uh, Carolina with one point up on both of the other two teams. And if Columbus wins out, they're at the Rangers and at the Ottawa Senators. They're in by virtue of having the tiebreak over Montreal. Montreal at Washington and then Toronto oof, at home should they sh- it should basically be the Marlies by that point for Toronto even though I guess Patrick Marlowe is going to keep playing to keep the Iron Man streak alive um, but it's going to be an interesting finish I, I tend to believe Carolina is okay Columbus's performance against Boston has me a little bit worried about the oh that's my choking noise and Montreal obviously with a pretty impressive win over over Tampa, although Tampa didn't have Vasilevsky and was coming off a back-to-back situation. What's your prognosis for the wild card in the East? 
Yeah, I'm still willing my journalistic, we like drama in the NHL, come and do it for us. Please, Yarmo Kikalainen, uh, Juju for the Columbus Blue Jackets. I, I believe that they're going to make it. I think, you know, they were up for so many of their games before that one in Boston. They were due for a slight regression. Um, the Canadians are the team that just won't go away for me. They're the cockroach. Like, they were the team. Like, they have Shea Weber playing maybe on, like, one leg. And somehow he's still doing somewhat decently defensively. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, they had that good win against the Lightning with a couple, you know, asterisks, but it's still a win. Um, they're the team I, I thought would fall off two months ago, one month ago, and here we are uh, now in April and they're still relevant. So I, I just can't count them out. Do you see the situation being that Columbus and Montreal are playing for the last wild card to be the sacrificial lamb against the Tampa Bay Lightning and Carolina most likely playing Washington? Or do you think there's a chance that we might see a Hurricanes-Lightning all-weather-related series to kick off the Eastern Conference playoffs? I think there's a chance. Uh, you know, it seems like this picture switches every single day. Uh, I do feel for whoever team does get that slot that has to go and, as you mentioned, be the sacrificial lamb against the Lightning uh, because they're going to fight so hard to get in. And I, I, you say what you want about whether the Lightning are going to choke at the end or not. They're getting past the first round. It's just going to happen. So, um, yeah, I, I have a feeling it's going to be, you know, the Blue Jackets who make it there because, as I said, I'm willing them in. Um, but, man, <laughs> how many great puns could we make out of that weather series? <laughs> Um, it looks like we're going to end up at, I mean, we obviously know Boston and Toronto are, are locked to play each other in the two, three game and barring something unforeseen and it could easily be Carolina, maybe hopping up over Pittsburgh. Uh, it looks like we might get Islanders in Pittsburgh and it's going to be an interesting situation for the Penguins. They're, they're one of these teams that I feel like maybe people are sleeping on because they've been undermanned, but they're going to get Malkin back. They played last game without both Latang and Dumoulin. If they both come back. I still think this is a dangerous team, um, especially since Matt Murray has really played well in the last month of the season. Um, but in, a, in an Islanders-Pittsburgh series, who'd you get? Uh, you know, I love the Islanders all season long, but I'm, I'm with the Pittsburgh Penguins on this. And I just think that goaltending, they'll figure out. I, I'm not as worried about Matt Murray as most people because, as I'll remind myself, I have the worst hot take. He was my Vezina pick uh, to begin the season. Um, yeah, but I do think they're going to get their blue line back. I just think there's something about playoff hockey in Pittsburgh, and, and they're just better suited. Um, and before we wrap this up, Greg, I just want to talk about the Colorado Avalanche. Please. How the hell are they doing this? I have no idea. They are uh, arrived ahead of schedule yet again. I, I look at this the back-to-back that they had with the Chicago Blackhawks where they really had to win both. And, uh, you know, they're big games. They were without two of their three best players. And they just did awesome. And I think Philip Grubauer has really emerged as the guy over the last couple of weeks. He's looked mm-hmm. like a stonewall. They're getting all this depth production that, you know, kind of eluded them last year. And, look, they're going to make the playoffs. They might get out in the first round. But... They are so well positioned for next year and the future. All anyone wants to talk about these days is Kale McCarr. And all anyone wants to talk about these days is the Ottawa Senators finishing last in the NHL and having to give up that pick. Yeah, I mean, that's just it. They're going to make the playoffs and end up with a top pick overall. So it's a pretty good place to be. I mean, I think they're going to get rolled by Calgary in the first round. I just, I know that the depth on Colorado has been somewhat more impressive than maybe it was last year, but I still don't think that they have the depth to match the Flames. Also, props to Nathan McKinnon, who... I mean, I don't know if he's going to make the Hart Trophy cut this year, 
But with them making the playoffs, he deserves a real good look. I mean, obviously, you know from the goal scoring, but three goals in his last four games, all of them victories for Colorado as they make this playoff push. 40-goal season, 97-point season matching last year's total. Um, a remarkable campaign for the Hart runner-up last season, but as we pointed out on our, our latest awards watch, it's Kucherov's award. He's probably going to run away with it. It's just a matter of what what combination of other maybe four or five guys it's going to be for the other spot. Uh, I tend to believe that Goudreau will still get one because the writers put him second overall midseason, and he's not really done anything to dis- dis- discourage that that placement. I do wonder if Crosby makes it. I kind of believe he might. I can't believe Ovechkin won't make it, but I don't think he will. I mean, dude has over double the number of goals of anybody else in the Washington Capitals, and I think maybe around the neighborhood of 16 more points than anybody else in the team, too. I think he's heartworthy. I just think it's a really hard case when, A, he's obviously won it before, and B, they're the defending Stanley Cup champions, and what's the real accomplishment in having a reigning champion win another division title, right? So... But I, I think he was, he's, uh, he's my top a... three last year, and I, I he's top three consideration for me this year. I'll say that. Yeah, he's had a fabulous year. Um, before before we uh, move on to our, our first guest, pour a little out for the Arizona Coyotes. A, a valiant effort given everything they've gone through this season. A shout out to Tim Cavanaugh who coined the term that is famous in our Slack channel, the Zona Yotes. Uh, <laughs> March was a magical month. I loved being a slight part of it and glimpsing at uh, the magic that they caught. And I wish we could see a playoff series this year in Arizona, but. There's always next year, right? Not only that, but a potential playoff series between the old Jets and the new Jets was on the table briefly this year. Ah. Instead, it's going to be the new Jets against a Dallas Stars team that could very much upset them in the first round, but don't tell anybody. While the NHL postseason is on its way, so are the NBA playoffs. So follow along with Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective. You can listen and subscribe on iTunes just like you have for ESPN on Ice. Their latest episode, Buyer's Remorse, is available now anywhere you can find your podcasts. All right, let's get to our guest. All right, join us now on the line, Jeff Blaschel, Detroit Red Wings head coach and the owner of a contract extension, which is great news. Um, Jeff, first off, can you bring us behind behind the scenes a little bit? A, were you concerned about your future with the team? And, and B, I've heard that uh, Kenny Holland was a, was a big influence – in ensuring that you were going to get this uh, this extension, is, is that accurate? Well, I'll start with the first part. I think every day you coach in, in pro sports and certainly in the NHL, uh, you realize uh, that you, at any point you could be fired, uh, regardless of contract. You know, I say all the time, I don't think contracts necessarily give you job security. In reality, they give you you know more financial security. Um, there's a give and take to that, obviously, but uh, certainly I coach every day. I don't coach afraid uh, to lose. You know, somebody once told me the best soldiers are the ones that aren't afraid to die. And we coach, I try to coach fearless, and you try to do the best you can, um, and you don't think about what happens if things don't go well. You know, and it, we, we've certainly had our times here where we haven't had the success we've wanted, but my focus has always been on trying to be solution-based and how can we be better. So that's really been my approach. You know, I feel like... The arc of this franchise is headed in the right direction, and I'm certainly glad that I get to continue uh, to push to, to see if we can't push for a better future. Jeff, I know uh, one of the things that I heard Ken Holland say is that he believes you're a better coach now than when he first started. First, do you believe that, and how? How do you think you're a better coach now? 
Well, I don't think there's any question that you better you better grow on the job, like any job. You know, I don't care if uh, if you're an accountant, if you're uh, in radio, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer. I hope you, you you keep growing as a as in your profession, and I certainly have tried to do that every day since I started coaching. Uh, I've tried to get better every day. I've tried to learn. Um, I think there's a trial and error. Uh, part of any job, and you're gonna you're gonna fail. You're gonna make mistakes. Uh, you know anybody that doesn't admit they make mistakes has never grown. Um, so certainly, have I made decisions? I've made lots of decisions. I've made uh, hopefully more right than wrong, but I hope I've learned from the wrong. And I think how do you grow? You grow through experience. You go through. You grow through. Uh, you know, and specific to the NHL, some of the unique challenges in the NHL. One's the schedule. It's a schedule unlike any other league. I coached in the American League. You play 76 games, but it's much more like binge hockey than it is uh, the every other day uh, schedule that it is in the NHL. And so you have to learn when you can push your guys real hard, how long to practice, how long you can push them, all those types of things. I certainly feel like I've grown uh, in that area. I think uh, in the NHL, one of the unique challenges is there's more uh, noise than any other league that you'll coach in. Uh, there's just more people around, there's more opinions, and I don't think that's a negative at all, but you have to learn how to manage that, and I think I've learned how to manage that. I've learned how to take in information, not be defensive about it, how to uh, take it in, decide if it's information I want to use, and how to use it. You guys have won six in a row. You've won eight out of nine. That was after a, a, a pretty, uh, I think you lost like uh, 12 of the, the 13 or something before that. Uh, what do you attribute to this this late season uptick for the team? Is it just sort of pressures off into the season, waiting for the summer break kind of attitude, or or is there something significant that you think has changed in the way that this team has played in, in the last couple of weeks? Well, I would say I would say around the trade deadline we lost our way a little bit. I I thought uh, I've really liked the vibe with our team all year, even as we fought through struggles, even at the beginning of the year. You know, I thought we had a real committed group. Um, I thought we were a group that uh, uh, worked every day to try to get better. And as we got to the trade deadline, we made a few trades. We had a couple of key injuries at the same time with Dylan Larkin and Mike Green. And I just thought we lost our way a little bit. And I think um, I was concerned. I didn't like the vibe. I didn't like uh, our, our commitment every single game. Um, when we got down in games, we slumped a little bit. And and, and I think in the last, you know, eight or nine games, we've really uh, been able to dig ourselves out of that. And I think it's a positive thing. I think if the question is, which it was, is why, uh, why have we been better lately? I'd say a couple things. One, it's a fine line league. And the difference between winning and losing every night is so finite. And confidence matters so much in this league, both individually and as a team, that I think once you get on a roll, you can really stay on that roll. So that's number one. Two, through this stretch, we've had excellent goaltending. And it's, again, in a fine-line league, goaltenders make such a huge difference in this league. And then three, our best players have been excellent, and we've lost a ton of guys to injuries. But some of our best players have, have stayed healthy through that stretch, and, and certainly the four young guys in in, uh, in Bertuzzi and in, in, in Athenasiu and Mantha and Larkin, they've been excellent through this stretch. And, and I think when your best players are your best players, uh, and, and when they go out and they win their shift on a consistent basis against the other team's best players, then the other guys just have to do their jobs, and, and you can find ways to win, and I think we've done that. And um, I think those are the biggest reasons why we've had success here lately. Jeff, I know that 
you mentioned the NHL season is a grind and the coaches love to watch tape and talk hockey and watch other hockey games. But if you ever just need to unwind um, and it's not spending time with your family, maybe you're on the road, what do you do? Is there a show you binge? Is there a book you read? How does Jeff Blaschel unwind? That's a good question. Uh, I don't have a whole bunch of unwind in me. Uh, my family <laughs> would tell you, uh, you know, it takes me a month probably after the season to kind of relax and just get into summer mode. Summer's way different, obviously, for coaches than, than, than during the winter. So, you know, they would tell you that they, they don't like that first three weeks or four weeks when I'm home. They, they kind of want me to, to go back on the road. Um, I would say the one thing I've got back into a little bit is uh, is reading a, a little bit before I go to bed. Uh, I, I read the, the author W. E. B. Griffin, oh, and yeah. it's uh, historical fiction. And 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 you know I I've read a lot of serious books, and I, I kind of got out of the sink of reading. I got sick of reading them, and 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 so I've just gone back to these historical fiction books. And I like history. My my father's a history buff. My brother's a history buff, and it's been just a way for me to kind of unwind before before bed. I've got back into that now that my kids are a little older. I got away from it when my kids were young, and you did everything you could to get every second of sleep. So uh, this has got me back in that mode a little bit. All right, Jeff. Last one. Let's say that you had the determining vote for Coach of the Year this year. Hmm. Who's the guy? The, the ranging debate. Is John Cooper with the historic regular season or Barry Trotz with the resurrection of the Islanders? Who's your guy? Let me first say that, that both have done an excellent job without a shadow of a doubt. They've both done an excellent job. Let me second say that it pains me to give you my answer because i got to put up with this guy for lots of the time through the summer. But without, for me, it would be John Cooper, and, and that's no disrespect to the Islander coaching staff. They've done an excellent job. Uh, I, I think the job they've done in Tampa, to win in this league at that rate, um, when I, as I said earlier, to me it's so such a buff parody league is really amazing they've done an excellent job uh coop's done an excellent job so i as much as it pains me to say it i'd have to give it to coop and it's kind of the problem that your predecessor had in detroit sometimes where it's hard to get traction for coach of the year when people just assume that you have the best talent and should do what you do in the regular season right coach of the year is always a tricky vote it really is it's all based on expectations and trying to exceed expectations and when your expectations are always high they're hard to exceed and, and if you think about it, the fact that Coop in Tampa has probably exceeded even their expectations, which was, uh, you know, which is the win of Stanley Cup, but they've done it in a, in a, in a record fashion. Uh, that's why I would, that's why I would give it to him. But it is hard when you have, uh, teams that are perceived to be great. Uh, it's really tough to exceed expectations. Well, Jeff, congratulations on the extension. Good luck to you in the draft lottery. I know there's a, a certain American kid who probably would like to spend some time with you. Uh, it's available in the lottery this year. <laughs> so good yeah. luck there. And, uh, and thanks for joining us on the, on the podcast, man. All right. Thanks guys. Our thanks to the Detroit Red Wings and Jeff Blashell and Greg, I don't know about you, but I just found it fascinating. And the fact that he loves to discover historical fiction, just like in every man. And did you guys know that discover is the official credit card of the NHL? And with discover, you can show how much you love your team everywhere you shop with a personalized card featuring your favorite NHL team's logo and colors. But no matter what team you root for, Discover is committed to rewarding all of the new card members with cash back match. Only Discover offers a dollar-for-dollar match of all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year, automatically. No caps, no signups. Redeem your awards in any amount at any time, and they never expire. 
With all that extra cash, you can treat yourself to center ice seats at the game, your favorite player's jersey, or maybe bet some new headphones to listen to your favorite podcast on. So you can try it and believe it at discover.com slash NHL. Only for new card members, limitations apply. And unfortunately, Greg, I hate saying this, but limitations do seem to apply sometimes for women's hockey. And that's the news we got this week. And I'm so sorry to make this a campy transition, but it's just what it is. It's my transition game. I just can't it's, help it. it. It's the Pulitzer for transitions. Game, and you game no continue game. to build your case. Um, yeah, but the, look, the, it's, the, it's sad news that we got on Sunday morning. It was shocking news, really. I've been told that all of this probably transpired on Wednesday or Thursday preceding it. But the CWHL, which is in 12 years of existence, folded. It is the non-for-profit league. Um, it is based in Canada. They have a board. They have a very legitimate commissioner, and she's legitimate because she's also been a guest on ESPN and Ice and is a Hall of Famer, Jana Hefford. And it left dozens, hundreds of athletes without a home next year. And uh, let's just talk first about what that means, uh, and then let's move on to the NHL's involvement and what comes next. So what does that mean is the question. It means that the NWHL is still around. It means that the NWHL, as you uh, reported and broke the news on, is going to add teams or look to add teams in Toronto, Montreal. Although the those teams pushed back last night to say, let's not just assume that they're going to be the Les Canadiens and uh, and the, and the Fury necessarily. So um, it's a it's a it's one league left standing. It's the NWHL saying they're in, going to increase the amount of money they pay. And it's no guarantee that all of the star players that played in the CWHL are then going to automatically move over to the NWHL because, as many pointed out during the last 48 hours, there's a reason they left. And it's not necessarily just to play in Canada. And it's sort of um, speculation at best to say that they're going to they're gonna jump back. Yeah, you know, there's a reason that, you know, Hillary Knight left and Brown and Decker left and I'll put it out there. I, I know that there was other U.S. women's national team players who played in the NWHL last season who were considering going to the CWHL next season. Uh, but as it pertains to the NHL involvement, and this seems to be the next hot button issue, is when is the NHL just going to create the WNHL? Um, and it came out that Danny Ryland told me, and they were the ones that emphasized they significantly upped uh, their contribution, the NHL did, to the NWHL. Well, it's only $100,000, and the NHL was giving $50,000 to each league last year, so really it's just the same commitment the NHL has had. I asked Bill Daly point blank, are you guys going to look to get more involved in the women's hockey space and governing a league? And he said, point blank, not at this time. As long as there is a home for women's hockey players to play, we are just not going to get involved. And, you know, part of me wonders uh, whether it's a perception thing for them. They don't want to be big brother, uh, being the man that has to come save the day from the woman. But the other part of me wonders, look, business is business and good business is good business. And do they just not see women's hockey as viable? Have they not looked into it far enough? Um, do they just not have the proposal ready and, and they're not ready to take these steps? Or what is really preventing them from getting in the women's hockey game? So... There's a lot to unpack there. Let's start off with with the viability of women's hockey. I've seen a lot of people that try to knock women's hockey down a peg, try to say, well, look at the WNBA and the financial situation with that league. I mean, that's like apples and Buicks. I mean, like there's no comparison between those two leagues at all. The The women's leagues are playing in significantly smaller buildings, much lower margins, not playing in arenas. I mean, it, it is completely different as far as what the economic models of these two leagues are from salaries down the line. Um, so let's just throw that out right now. The NHL's problem, from what I gather, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that 
it's not necessarily about the viability of women's hockey. It's that they don't, they didn't like the models of either of these leagues. You get that vibe or no? Yeah. And you know what? Someone called me out on this and they're like, you know, we keep hearing this models, models. What is models? And I don't know. I almost wonder if that's just a crutch thing. And I wonder if it's more, okay, Danny Ryland has this vision. She created this. She saw a need for it. Yes, she has her flaws as an executive, but we're not going to get in her way if she doesn't want our help. It, it could be that. I also found it interesting. So the, it was reported that the, so you reported that the, the NHL was, quote, significantly increasing its investment in the NWHL, which was a quote that the NWHL gave you. Like the guidance on that language was from the league. Yes. Yeah, I said, is it fair to say they upped it? And they said, yes, say significantly. Okay. So then everybody goes with that. It turns out that the significant increase in funding is doubling the money that they're giving it from 50,000. 200% increase. Yeah. It's $50,000 to $100,000 taking the money that they were giving the CWHL and then giving it to this other league. And so everybody, everybody kind of goofs on it saying, okay, significant increase in funding, but I mean, it's just moving money around women's hockey. And also, is that really all that significant compared to, you know, fill in the NHL revenue stream here? So the, the the thing I don't quite understand, as I saw play out on Twitter the last, like, 48 hours from people involved in the story are, okay, you don't want the NHL involved in the women's leagues. But also, they don't invest enough in the women's leagues. Like, these two criticisms were coming from a lot of the same sources, and they don't really square with me. Like, either you want them out, or you want them to give more, but you can't kind of have both living in the same sphere. It's weird. That said... The NHL's pushback on this was absolutely absurd. Like the idea that this is somehow a significant contribution to women's hockey is nonsense. The, uh, think of how much money they give to different programs that exist solely to increase their demographics and increase their audiences. Hockey in Harlem, uh, you know, floor hockey, street hockey, all of these things throughout the North America that they fund without looking for any return on investment, by the way, in the immediate financial future. All of it is sort of just investment in people, investment in fans, investment in future players. That's all it is. So the idea that like the NHL would look at the Women's League and be like, well, they don't turn a profit, so why would we invest in it? Well, you invest in it because they have found a way to reach audiences that you can't. That's why you invest in it. So the, I don't quite, they, they are, they're treating this sort of different than the rest of their philanthropic investments in the overall world of hockey as uh, put forth by the Declaration of Principles signed off by the Pope. Just because it's a business, it doesn't change the fact that it is a business that exists in order for you to be able to create new fans. And the idea that they're going to look at this and say, well, here's your, here's your pitiance. I just, I don't agree with it. I, I think they can invest more. And I also think that, um, you know, the NWHL shouldn't put it up that you know, it was sort of flattery. I think they were going for by saying it was a significant investment. The one thing I'll end on is I agree. Um, I also want to put it out there that I'm not only uh, going to criticize the NHL for not doing more. USA Hockey, where are they? They give uh, a lot of money to a lot of other organizations. Why are they not supporting professional women's hockey? Hockey Canada didn't fully uh, give money and support the CWHL as well. So those two organizations also, I think, should yeah, receive some scrutiny. And the last thing, um, you know, if the NHL wanted to give more money to the NWHL, 
uh, or any women's professional hockey league, um, they could use the industry growth fund, which was in the CBA. And that's something that Donald Fair fought for in the last CBA. If they were to do it, obviously they need the NHLPA to be in agreement. I have a feeling the NHLPA would. I was in talks with them when I was working on my story about this. They supported the CWHL. They support women's hockey in general. Uh, I can't see much pushback there. Right now, the money uh, coming in right now, Bill Daly confirmed to me, was from just general league funds. Um, and he confirmed to me that the industry growth fund, and you could read in the CBA, someone tipped me off to this. It's exactly uh, where they could find uh, the pooling and resources to make this done. Yeah. And the last two things we'll say are, first off, you know, this shouldn't surprise anybody considering how the professional affiliations of the women that were involved in the NHL skills competition were buried, basically, compared to their national team affiliations. So, you know, the, uh, on a platform where the the leagues could have really used a signal boost from the NHL, they were buried. And, this, and, and the last thing is, uh, I'll ask you this because you've owned this story. Where do you think it's going? Uh, three years from now, where are we with, with a professional women's league? Does the NWHL still exist? Has the NHL started one within the context of a new CBA? Where are we? Where do you think it goes? You know, I've had a lot of thought about this and I've had a lot of conversations about it. And until maybe yesterday or two days ago, I always thought the end game was the NHL has to get involved for the sustainable of women's hockey, uh, sustainability of women's hockey. That said, I'm now starting to wonder if it's not the women, uh, the league office. And I think that Danny Ryland is going out and having a ton of conversations with people saying, look what the Pagulas did. The Pakulas are happy with it. They're not seeing return on investment now, but trust me, it's all about building and investing and growing the community. And I wonder if that's the model that goes forward and we just have individually, privately owned groups. It is the NWHL. There's maybe more significant NHL involvement, but they're not the ones governing it because, frankly, I just haven't been encouraged that they really are invested in that space. All right. Vince Massey is a writer on hockey and a compiler of statistics on hockey for the ESPN Stats and Info Department. Vince wanted to come on the show, and he wanted to start spreading knowledge and spreading facts. And we said, you know what? We'll give you a platform. And so Vince got your number. We will, in theory, trade weeks with Satch got your number. And here's Vince to tell you a little bit more about the Red Wings. Hey, Emily and Greg. It's Vince Massey from ESPN Stats and Information. And I hear you got Jeff Blaschel on the show today. You're talking Red Wings and it's been quite a turnaround for them over the last month and a half. Consider back February 15th to March 15th, they had the worst record in the NHL in that span. They were 1-9-3. and three. They had the worst save percentage in the league. They had the third worst even strength possession percentage of anybody when they were leading the game. And that PDO at even strength was the worst in the league. Something's changed because since March 16th on, they're tied with the Avalanche for the best points percentage in the league. They have an 8-1-0 record. Now they have the second best Safe percentage in the league at 938. Since March 16th, the Red Wings are the only team with four different players with 10 points. That group includes Dylan Larkin, Andreas Athanasiu, Anthony Mantha, and Tyler Bertuzzi. Now the Red Wings have a pair of 30-goal scorers this season under the age of 25. That's Larkin and Athanasiu. Now, the last time they had one of those was 1995-96, Slava Kozlov. That's also their historic season. And the last time that they had two in a season, that was 1993-94. Pretty known names, Sergei Fedorov, Slava Kozlov, and Keith Primo. It's been quite a turnaround for the Wings, and maybe their future is bright. Listen to that. He needs to sign off with, this. Is, I'm Vince Massey, ESPN. He needs to do that. ESPN, stats, and info. And info. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us now, another uh, fine voice from ESPN. It's Leah Hextall. And now joining us is a very special guest and a colleague now. 
uh, Leah Hextall, who became the first woman to call a men's NCAA Division One hockey game uh, this past spring. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here with the both of you guys. Thanks for having me on. And I mean, I never thought that I'd be as prestigious to be a colleague with the both of you. (laughs) Well, that's very kind. Leah, I'm curious, you know, you've had a long and industrious career in media, but it seems like play-by-play is something new for you. How did you make that transition? Why did you make that transition? And what's it been like? I made that transition simply, Emily, because I couldn't get a job. Um, that's just really the honest answer. I was working for Hockey Night in Canada and Sportsnet, and they had signed a big, beautiful deal of 12 years, $5.2 billion, and I'd been working at Nesson in Boston, and they brought me up to work for them. And two years in, unfortunately, due to economics and the business just kind of going down the drain a bit, they had to do a mass layoff, and I was one of them. And it was, you know, as I mentioned, just with economics and nothing personal, but at the end of the day, the business was not in a good place. And after 14 years of working my way up to, you know, one of the most iconic brands in hockey, um, I auditioned for a few jobs that off season, and I couldn't get a job. And so for me, it was just a matter of recognizing that the landscape of the industry had changed and that they were going in a different direction for studio hosts and reporters, which were jobs that I traditionally had held through my entire career. And I had always wanted to try play-by-play, and I say that with a lot of humility because you both know that I truly believe while everything else is takes such good skill to do well, it's really hard, and especially in the sport of hockey because of the speed of the game. And for me, I wanted to try it. I thought, why not? And from there, I utilized my network, made some friends, gave me some advice, and uh, just started practicing and reached out to the same network that laid me off, which was Sportsnet. And I knew that they had the women's package in the, unfortunately, RIP, CWHL. And they gave me an opportunity to do it. And away we went. So that's really why I got into it. It was almost out of necessity. And the fact that, listen, it was somewhat strategic as well, because I knew that if I started to do this, I'd have a different voice than the ones that we had heard. And I think that the industry is looking for new voices in play-by-play, and I think they are looking you know, to bring more females into those type of non-traditional roles. This is true, uh, but, and, and you are a trailblazer, but you obviously had to be influenced by some dude in your past, as far as play-by-play style, you grew up in Canada, so there's like a number of people I'm already thinking of, but you also worked in Boston. So how much was Jack Edwards an influence on your play-by-play style? <laughs> I don't think Jack Edwards is an influence at all because I don't know if I could ever match his enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, the man is just a machine when it comes to the cadence in his voice and how excited he gets about things. And, and that's the one thing I actually really struggle with. And it's the one note I get is that I don't have enough, you know, cadence in my voice when, you know, you get around the net and, you know, a shot attempt goes wide and, you know, and goals and whatnot. And I struggle with that because for me, you know, I always feel like, a bit of an idiot when I get so excited. So he didn't influence me that much, but I think what I love about Jack is just that he loves the game and he loves the Bruins. But, you know, the biggest influence on me so far in the play-by-play world has been Doc Emmerich. And, mm. I mean, we all know who Doc is. He's the voice on NBC. And um, he's the first one I talked to about doing play-by-play. And he, um, you know, I got an email from him the night before I did my first two NCAA games, and he lit a candle for me at his church in Michigan. And, you know, he's given me oh. such good advice and guidance, and He's always there, and I mean, if I could be a quarter of what he is in his career, I think that, that I would consider that a success. That's that's such a, that's such a great story. Well, from from a perspective of covering a college game, 
Um, you know, I'm sure there's like a base of knowledge that you would have had where you calling an NHL game. When it comes to covering the NCAA, what kind of uh, prep goes into it? What are the, what are sort of the differences in preparing for this kind of a tournament versus maybe covering a, a National Hockey League regular season game? That's a great question, Greg, because it's night and day. You know, I think if I ever do get the opportunity to call an NHL game, it will really probably be the easiest game I do because <laughs> these are household names. You could walk into calling a game and you already know so much about all the NHL players because of the information you have and from covering the game for so long. When it came to college hockey, in Boston when I worked for Nesson, I covered Hockey East for two years, but that was six years ago. So I knew nothing about any of the four teams that were going to be in the East Regional. So on Monday, once we found out on Sunday, uh, not even a week before I was calling the games, what four teams would be in my region, it was literally getting on the phone with all the SIDs, all the coaches, learning about their seasons, looking at these players, figuring out who they are, and then, you know, just trying to get used to saying certain names. I mean, you know, Vimal Sukumaran, I, I mean, it took me forever to get that name, and then the guy ended up now. being a huge stud for PC. So, I mean, my God, and he's number 22, and I'll know that probably for the rest of my life now. But it was such a challenge, and the first two games, thank, thank goodness for Billy Jaffe, because I really leaned on him. He was oh, so yeah. good. Uh, good. The entire people. team I had at ESPN just lifted me up, because it was like bumper cars out there. Um, you know, you're looking at it, you've got four teams, back-to-back games. I've never done that before. You know, this was game 9, 10, and 11 for me. And all of my games have been on national television. So I'm, you know, putting myself out there in a way that's not super comfortable um, because I'm making my mistakes in front of an audience. But, um, you know, it was so much preparation. And the final was a lot of fun because I just called both those teams the day before. So I felt much more comfortable but I really, I had a bit of a panic attack probably on Monday night after talking to all the teams because I thought, how am I going to do this? All right, Leah, I feel like I can ask you a million questions about your process. You're Canadian. I'll say process right. Um, <laughs> but I want to, I don't want to risk uh, making Mr. Richard Deitch jealous of making this a media podcast. So I'm going to shift it back onto the ice and ask you about the hockey that you saw uh, in that East Regional. Tell me, you know, some of our listeners who might not have watched and want to tune into the Frozen Four. Who are some of the most impressive players that you saw and and guys that you think might even be able to make an impact on the NHL level? I think first and foremost it would be on the Friars' defense, and that's Jacob Bryson. He's a defenseman that's not huge, but he's one of those guys that every time he's on the ice, he's doing something that makes an impact in a very subtle way, and I hope that makes sense. And I always feel that that's what the best defensemen are. You don't necessarily notice them quite as much, but he never makes mistakes. All of his plays are heady, and I just think that the Buffalo Sabres have a real gem there. Um, you know, I thought that he was just excellent for PC. Um, Kanan Mackey, who was another one, another defenseman, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to just pick defensemen, but he played for <laughs> Minnesota State, and he was phenomenal. He was just all over the ice all the time. He was one of those players that you noticed more as a defenseman, but still, again, just making things happen every time that he touched the puck and such confidence, especially to be playing at the college ranks. So those were two players that just in both of those games stood out to me. But, you know, I was, uh, for me, I mean, I've called the women's game up until now, so the speed of the game 
um, you know, it's not NHL speed, but it's definitely faster than the women's game. And uh, it took me a bit to adjust to it, but I was really impressed with what I saw out there. I know how strong of a conference uh, Hockey East is, so uh, coming in and having Minnesota State, who were just an amazing program to deal with, and then also having Cornell, uh, which also was very good to deal with. So those are two of the names that kind of stood out to me. There you go. Denver, UMass, Providence, Minnesota, Duluth, uh, and the semifinals are April 11th, right here on ESPN2. Yeah, uh, Leah, you, uh, you mentioned the CWHL before, uh, Emily and I were chatting about it earlier in the podcast. Uh, what were your thoughts when you heard about the, uh, the league folding, uh, this week? Well, I was just about to walk to the rink to call the East Regional Final, and to me, that's probably the biggest game of my career to date, and I was just gutted, Greg. I mean, I didn't see this coming. I just called the Clarkson Cup two weeks ago, and I thought that they had probably one of their most successful years. And that's why, you know, if I'm going to just be honest, I think this was a strategical move. Hmm. I, I understand that, you know, the way in which the league works, it's not working properly when it comes to the model of it, and it's never going to be a huge moneymaker. But I think that the CWHL looked at it, and the NHL has made it very clear in no uncertain terms. The Commissioner Gary Bettman has stated they are not coming in until there's not a place for women to play, which I do. I don't really like that. I think it's a bit of a cop-out, if I might say so. Um, but I think they did it for the good of the game, a step backwards to go forward. The only problem is is that there still is an opportunity for women to play professional hockey, and I'm going to be really interested because I was talking to Liz Knox, who's, who was the head of the CWHLPA, and I was talking to her just last night, and she said to me, it shouldn't be so hard. And it shouldn't be so hard. It just breaks my heart for these women because they're the best in the world at what they do, and they don't really have a place to play that works. And I'm going to be interested to see now what happens with the NWHL. I know that they had a really strong season, but at the end of the day, I think we all know and the players know that you want to be under that NHL umbrella. So does that mean that they boycott? Does that mean that they all don't play for one year? And I hate to say it, but try to get the NWHL to go away so that finally the NHL comes in and creates a WNHL and makes it so that from now on it's not a, oh, are we playing every single year? What's happening for the future of our game? But knowing that they have a structured future ahead of them that's going to grow the game. So I, I, that in my gut feels like that's why the CWHL closed. Leo, I'll leave you with this. Uh, I've asked a bunch of people this question uh, involved in women's hockey over the last you know, two or three weeks. I asked it to Danny Ryland yesterday. Uh, in your ideal world, what does the perfect professional women's hockey league look like? It looks like identical to the NHL. It's that every team that an NHL market goes into from now on, they have to have parity. It means for every male team, there's a woman's team. And why not? It's for the good of the game. And I believe the commissioner himself has come out and said that their sport more than any other sport has more female fans. And just think about what it's going to do if you have a very strong women's league. It's going to create more fans for the game of hockey. And to see those leagues have, so if there's a Jets game at 7 o'clock at night, the women play at 4, and if you're a season ticket holder for the Jets, you get that ticket to the women's game. Mm. I just think it's a no-brainer. I think it would build it. I think, you know, it's like the field of dreams. Build it, and they will come because it's a great product, and I believe there's room for it. Great stuff. Finally, you are a Manitoba girl. I am. You are familiar quite well with the Winnipeg Jets. <laughs> this team is stumbling and bumbling down the stretch. 
What are your expectations for the Jets in the Stanley Cup playoffs? You know what? They're still real strong, Greg. And I've, I've done a lot of speaking about this here locally in the market. I work uh, for CGOB here, and I, I contribute to their radio station and their Jets coverage. And the fact of the matter is is that this is a team that, until they played Chicago on Monday night, that's the first game they had in their time zone since January. Wow. They've had a really, really tough schedule down the stretch here the last month and a half because of that trip to Finland. They've been without their top two defensemen for the last few months. That's going to cause vacancies within your lineup. It's not going to be able to hide some blemishes as well. You know, I think that this team is ready to go. I know that they had a closed-door meeting the other night after losing to Minnesota, but I don't think that's a panic button. I think that's a reset button. This team is built for playoff hockey, and it's time. Um, you know, I think that this team is uh, is ready to go more than people give them credit for, and I think a switch will be flipped when 82 is over and they skate into the postseason. Awesome stuff. Where can people find uh, your work, by the way? You mentioned the radio gig in, in, in Winnipeg. Well, when I'm not on ESPN being colleagues with you two, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I do some uh, freelance work. I do some for The Athletic. I do, I'm here with CJOB for the Winnipeg Jets. But, you know, that's really about it. I just kind of, you know, and along with Sportsnet, just calling the women's game, that, uh, that keeps me pretty busy. Awesome. Leah, thanks for your time, and uh, hope everybody has enjoyed your work on the tournament. It's been really great. Well, thank you so much, Greg and Emily, for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, I can't wait to listen to you guys throughout the postseason. All right, thanks to Leah Hextall for joining us. Um, a fine job, indeed, on the NCAA Hockey Tournament. As we mentioned, semifinals coming up on ESPN2, and then, of course, the finals as well you can catch uh, in our uh, fine network of, of, of the networks. Uh, now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel Loves Hot Dogs. It's the weekly segment where we look at the uh, foibles and mistakes and the errors and the hyperbole of the exalted hockey media. Now, I thought about uh, dedicating this space to the Edmonton media currently yelling at me about the revisionist history in which they weren't critical of Taylor Hall during his time there. This is based on a joke I made uh, after my friend Tyler Dello got hired by the Devils about how the Devils have a really good track record with uh, people being run out of Edmonton by petty, misguided columnists. It was pretty much a, sh- a shot at Mark Spector, but now all the rest of the Edmonton writers are all in a kerfuffle about it. But that's neither here nor there. I'm going to go with something else that I saw online this week. A journalism professor named Joe Gisandi, um dropped this tweet. If you're going to work as a sports journalist, you can't be a fan. No we or us. No public cheering in the press box. Both real and virtual, parentheses, social media. Report thoroughly, act independently, minimize harm, be transparent, produce newsworthiness and interesting content. I wanted to point this out for the simple fact that there are two competing notions in this statement, which is that you can't be a fan, but you should also be transparent. The idea that you somehow bury the latent gene or DNA in your body that made you passionate about sports to begin with the minute you become a sports writer, maybe some people can flip that switch, but not everybody can. And I think that there's always going to be accusations about you being a fan of a certain team or not liking a certain team. I feel like if you are transparent with your audience, well, then 
you admit that you grew up a Leafs fan or that you don't like the Flyers or things of that nature. I, I feel like these two things are not compatible. Like if you're transparent about your loyalties, your likes and dislikes, then you are also admitting that, yes, you might have an affinity for one team over another. Amen. But it's a, but, but there's a, a light years difference between that and, and cheering in the press box, to which I would then say this. Whenever I hear these laments about cheering in the press box or don't say we or us, I always come back to the same thing. Have you ever been to the Olympics? The Olympics is where all decorum goes to decay. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, yeah, I'm sure we should, we should, you know, frown at the, the Nashville Predators writer that's waving pom poms in the press box if, uh, you know, Ryan Johansson scores the game winner in overtime to win game seven. Yeah, but that, we should not feel good about that. But if you go to the Olympics and you see people literally high-fiving when Michael Phelps wins a race, come on. It's fine there, I guess. All right. Now it's time for, uh, puck headlines, dateline Edmonton. Connor McDavid is super fed up. We don't even have a GM, so I don't think we're any, in any position to comment on next season, McDavid said. We have a lot of crap to figure out. I hope we can put the right man in the spot and we can put together a good team. We want to play in the playoffs as a team. I personally want to play in the playoffs. I'm not happy about it. It's going to be a long summer. Emily, what are we about two years away from Connor asking out of Edmonton? I love it. And no, I, I didn't take this as this at all. I, I take it as someone of, look, Connor McDavid is the guy who has to stand at his locker every day and answer the same questions when his team is in the same place. And finally, he's like, look, I'm just going to tell you how I really feel. And if you talk to his teammates, he's got a lot more soul than he lets on. Uh, I've seen him be a little emo or show a little bit of personality. I think it's going to grow. And um, I, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. I think it's just a guy that's exhausted and fatigued at the end of the season. And he's right. They don't even have a GM. Yeah. And it, and it's going to – the thing that I – I hate that Connor's not on the biggest stage of the season. Um I mean, I hate that he's in Edmonton more, but I hate that he's not on the biggest stage of the season. And I feel like, I feel like we all underestimate how much damage Peter Chiarelli really did to this team. I mean, you look at this roster and you look at their cap situation and you, and you look at the Ken Holland level number of no movement clauses that have been handed out to players like Chris Russell. Holland. And you're saying to yourself, how do you fix this? And so I, I, I worry for Connor because I feel like. I feel like this is a bigger wreck than people really realize. And it's going to take a hell of a general manager to come in there and fix this thing in the short term. Uh, Dateline Raleigh. Not, not the best week for the Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, they are, they are in a playoff spot. That's good. Uh, their owner lost upwards of $40 million. I think it was on the Ameri- Alliance of American Football. Uh, uh, we've had, was it more than that? I believe it's 70. 70? Okay. I mean, what's that? At that that point, what's 30 million? Yeah, what's 30 million amongst friends? Uh, our our good friend Tom Dundon, who came on this very podcast to talk about that project, uh, pulled the plug on the league and then was uh, tossed under the bus, as it were, by the other two owners. Um, but it got even worse because Adam Fox, uh, who was a, a, a primo young NCAA defenseman for Harvard, uh, a key part of the trade that bought Dougie Hamilton um, and Michael Furland over to the Hurricanes. They, the notion was they win the Noah Hannafin trade, uh, or we should probably call it the Elias Lindholm trade, uh, go without question if Adam Fox becomes a member of the Hurricanes, but he won't. He doesn't want to play there. And instead, Emily, it appears that Adam Fox will be joining the New York Hockey Rangers in short order. 
Yeah, no, it's look, it's not a great week, especially for the Carolina Hurricanes because they semi-retired the storm surge, although I'm not convinced that it's gone forever. Um, yeah, what's interesting to me about Tom Dunnan, I'll start there. Uh, I was talking to a lot of my friends in football uh, and the scuttlebutt there is that he never was actually interested in the AAF. It was all about the data and the technology in the app. Uh, mm-hmm. That was what he was interested in. And when he realized that, um, you know, the NHL, the NFL, rather, NFLPA weren't going to partner with him and become this developmental league right away, he's like, you know what? F it. Shutting this thing down. So, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's why. the shade that Bill Polian uh, threw oh. on Tom Dunn on the way out because this is right. Bill Polian's baby and uh, Tom Dunn just. Yeah. Sure. Emily Emily pointed me to an ESPN article on this breakup late yesterday where Bill Polian just basically takes a blowtorch to Tom Dundon. But you see, this entire thing with the AAF is exactly why, at the end of the day, I'm an XFL man. I'm not buying a football league for an app. I'm trying to take down the NFL. This is the XFL. Dateline Jack Adams. Dan Rosen of NHL.com projects that Barry Trotz will win Coach of the Year. We talked to Jeff Blaschel about this uh, earlier. What's your take on on the Jack Adams? Are you a, a, a Coop fan or a, a Trotz fan? You know, I feel like the conversation has been slowly changing. I feel like the narrative has been slowly changing, and the momentum seems to be in John Cooper's favor. Uh, it felt like all year long it was uh, Trotz's race to root, lose. You know, guys like Tockett kind of came up here and there. Uh, Bill Peters probably didn't get enough love, but it was really the Trotz show, but uh, the more you talk to people, the more impressive it seems of what the Lightning did and the more they seem to impress. So if I had to vote, the broadcasters get to vote. But if it was me, I think I might be in that Cooper camp. be interesting to see how much love Bruce Cassidy gets this year. I think he's done a really good job with the Bruins. Uh, and I'd be really interested to see if Craig Berube gets credit for the Blues turnaround, as he probably should, or if it's going to be seen as sort of the Jordan Bennington show and then Berube's just there for the ride. So They just don't have enough appearances, though. Yeah, Both clearly. Uh, Dateline math. Can Alex Ovechkin catch Wayne Gretzky's record of 849 goals? Uh, the Athletics Chris Cook asked uh, Brett Hull that question. It's a good question, Hull said. It all depends on does he stay healthy? Does he want to continue to play that long? 894 goals, that's an awful lot of goals. I remember when I hit 700 and I was like, I'm still almost 300 away. I mean, it seems like you're close, but you're not really. Well, I mean, you are a lot closer if you realize that 894 goals is only 194 goals away from 700 rather than 300. Is that I mean? I'm siding with a Hall of Famer here. Math is hard, man. Math is super hard. I would have messed that up, too. I struggle I mean, even just being in central time zone and having to add hours and subtract hours, so... Is it possible that Brett Hull became so intimidated by the mountain in front of him because he couldn't do math and he thought it was going to be impossible to catch Gretzky? It's quite possible, and I I don't blame him. Oh, speaking of, of of mountain climbing, I just watched Free Solo last night. Did you see it yet? No. It's on Hulu, I want to say. It's the one about the guy who climbs like El Capitan without yeah. the benefit of any ropes or anything that won the Oscar. I got to tell you, man, um, it's it's a pretty great movie about a guy climbing a mountain. I was much more interested in the woman that loves this man. I was much more interested to find out who the person is that is, I mean, is it someone with like a widow fetish? Like it's just waiting for this dude to fall off the mountain because for someone to be in a relationship with someone that does that, where one slip of your foot means you are, and, and by the way, the documentary does a really good job in showing you exactly how many people did not succeed at doing this very thing. 
uh, and are no longer with us, unfortunately. I, I wanted to, I wanted three hours on her versus to see this guy chalk up his hands and climb up a mountain. Dateline player tracking. So I wrote a, a, an update on player tracking, and it's actually really interesting news for the people that are uh, I- interested in this. The NHL rejected optical camera tracking, and that's what brought them to the whole let's put a, a sensor on the players, let's put a sensor in the puck kind of thing. Because the thing, the optical didn't work because there's too much traffic. You can use it in the NBA. You could use it in tennis to track the ball. When it comes to hockey, there's too many bodies that get in the way of other bodies. Bodies colliding. The puck gets disappeared. You can't really use it. But they tend to believe that if used in concert with the sensor tracking, it's going to give the clearest picture of what's happening on the ice. Basically, it comes down to this. The sensors can tell you where the puck is. The optical tells you exactly when the puck is on somebody's stick. And that's going to be the situation they go for. But I just found it really interesting, Emily, that like this was a, a a version of player tracking that one of the guys at the NHL literally told me earlier this year was obsolete. And now it turns out it's going to be a, a fairly essential part of the overall player and puck tracking picture beginning next season. It's fascinating. My question to you, because you've been following the story and you've been reporting on it. How much do you think things are going to change even before we start implementing this next season? It could. Um, I, I think the the issue is that there are constant tweaks being done to the tech gotcha. and in particular to the puck. And and to me, it, the puck is still the biggest concern is that you they are still working on rounding off the edges. They're still talking about, uh, can we try different materials? It's going to be a really rough ride when they implement this thing to hear every player in the league being like, would have scored on that one, but the stupid chip inside the puck made it lighter or heavier. And uh, and I feel like there's going to be a real pushback from the players when you change a fundamental piece of equipment like that. So I hope they get it right. I, as, as I said, I'm a huge fan of puck tracking and player tracking. I hope the optical plus sensor thing works. I hope that we get a, a buttload of data that we can now use to figure out if players are good and figure out actual numbers on puck possession. And I want to be able to bet on how many miles a player skates during a game while I'm at the arena. How fun is that? So I hope it works out. I'm just sort of wary on this whole thing coming together the way that they think it will. But they're trying, and and I, I got to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to be able to figure out at some point. Finally, Dateline the Joker. The trailer dropped as we do this podcast, Emily. Are you at all interested in an origin story on the infamous Batman villain, the Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix as the titular joker no but i'll probably <laughs> see it anyway <laughs> it's uh it's an interesting trailer in the sense that it looks like the director of the hangover is trying to do a martin scorsese movie about the joker um but I, there is a scene in the movie in the trailer emily where it does appear that a 44 year old joaquin phoenix is meeting a 10 year old bruce wayne and I'm, try- I'm again. The, the the TV show Gotham does the same thing, playing around the ages of their characters. I'm just thinking, like when Bruce Wayne is old enough to be Batman, the Joker is going to be in his 70s, and 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 none of this squares with me. It doesn't make him that threatening if he's wa- if he's got a, a a multicolored walker with balloons on it, trancing around Gotham. Makes no sense to me. All right, folks, we've got no rant line this week, but we'd love to hear from you next week. So if you can give us a call at eight six zero. Five one six one zero two nine. Again, it's eight six zero five one six one zero two nine. They've been awesome this year. Uh, the bar is high, so exceed it and be the John Cooper in your own world. 
All right, that's ESPN on Ice this week. Thank you for uh, joining us, Jeff Flashill. Thank you for joining us, Leah Hextall. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. If you dig the podcast, again, go and review it on iTunes. Every review helps people find the show, and we appreciate all the support you've given us. And uh, that's it. You can find my stuff at Wyshynski on Twitter and on ESPN.com. At Emily M. Kaplan and on ESPN.com, where you should check all week because we have a ton of content ahead of the playoffs. Oh, my God. Bye. Bye. Bye.